Hey guys, this is Jennifer from The Shooter's Mindset. We are live with episode 330. We have our co-host tonight, Greg Cannon. How's it going? Good. How about you? Doing well. It's almost Wednesday, almost hump day. One more day to be halfway done. And our guest of the hour is Paul McCoy of PMAC Precision. How's it going, Paul? Good. I appreciate y'all having me. Yeah, this is great. It'll be good to hear all about all kinds of stuff guns and shooting and all the stuff we like to talk about. So for those that are unfamiliar with you, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into shooting. Uh, I, uh, I'm actually a retired fire department captain out of Dallas, Dallas, Fort Worth area. And uh, about the time I retired, I started running pistol matches in Dallas. And I did that uh, every other Thursday night for four and a half years. I actually started my own organization, wrote my own rules, the whole deal had a really cool deal. It was called Texas Combat Shooters. And uh, it, it went on. And through that, I met a guy who had a friend out east of Dallas that had a gun range that had kind of gone into disrepair. And he said, we're looking for somebody to take this gun range over. And I said, eh, I don't know about all that. So I went out there and looked at it. And uh, to tell you how bad it was, she actually paid me $400 to take this gun range over. Oh, no. Um, so anyway... I did that for a while. I'd had a few pistol bays and stuff. And then I knew there was like 300 acres, but I couldn't figure out where this 300 acres was. So I, I asked somebody and they're like, oh, you gotta drive up the road, there's another gate. And I walked out there and I stood up on this hill and looked down into a valley and I thought, this is like the perfect place to build a long range facility. And so anyway, that's that's how it's called Jacob's Playing Gun Club. And then I built the battlefield, I called it the battlefield. And uh, I had been doing a little long range shooting prior to that. And so that's kind of what got me into long range shooting. Very cool. The rest is history. That's what usually happens is people get the bug. So you had not shot long range before you started the range? Very minimally. I had a buddy, I actually was teaching, uh, I was teaching chief, uh, NRA chief range safety officer courses. And I met a guy through that that talked me into going and shooting long range with him. And it's kind of one of those things that probably a similar story to a lot of people is he took me to a place out west of Fort Worth and uh, sat me down and I got behind a 308 and he had thrown some four inch clay pigeons out on a thousand yard berm and uh, I hit one on my third shot and that was the most expensive shot in the history of shooting because um, you know 10 years later I told him that I wanted my I wanted the 308 back I had that day and the quarter of a million dollars I've spent shooting since then so he still laughs about it because he knows I'm, I'm only exaggerating slightly. I get that. I think everybody has that uh, that shot that gets them hooked. And then uh -huh. all of a sudden, it's like, you're like, I am not paying that much money for a gun. I'm not paying that much money for a scope. And then you have that shot. And then you're like, oh, I need this. <laughs> listen, listen, I see, I'm, I'm looking right behind you. And I'm seeing what cost me all this money. It was it was the rifle that came in that chassis and that amazing trigger tech trigger, and uh, he dialed it in at like nine hundred and eighty yards, and I'm like, I dialed all your dope for you, so all you had to do was pull the trigger. I know because at that point in time, I thought dope was something you smoked. <laughs> <laughs> I still get that. I'll be like, yeah, you know, the night before at the the night before the match, I'll sit down and go through my dope, and they're like. You're what? It's so funny to watch people react to that. I'm like, no, not that kind of dope. <laughs> Different kind of dope. 
So how did PMAC Precision get its start? And what all services does PMAC do? Like, kind of tell us about it a little uh, bit. I don't have any short stories, Jennifer. This will be a bit of a long story, but uh, obviously- Long stories are good. We got an hour and a half. Okay, so working in the fire department, I had, you know, I had 20 days a month off and I had some rather interesting part-time jobs throughout my 26 years with the fire department. Um, I had really, before I got on the fire department, I had gone to college and was taking machining courses because I wanted to build race engines and uh, kind of stumbled into being, joining the fire department. I met a couple of guys that were firemen and they're like, yeah, we only work every third day and here's how much money we make and we spend the rest of the time fishing and hunting. I was like, oh, this sounds pretty good. I'm not crazy <laughs> about heights, but uh, I'm pretty crazy about having two out of three days off making, you know, double what I was making at the time. So um, eventually what happened was I ended up uh, working for one of the premier race engine shops in the country is located in Dallas. Uh, they're responsible for most, uh, it's a company called Rear Morrison, and they're responsible for most of the technology that exists in drag racing today. And in fact, when I was working there, we were actually doing the cylinder heads for Jeff Gordon and the intake manifolds when he was winning all his restrictor plate races. And then eventually NASCAR figured out maybe that intake manifold wasn't quite legal and they fined him $25,000. Oh, wow. But he had won six races with it. So he had made millions of dollars with it. Um, so that's kind of a backstory. But, uh, you know, I have, I have built engines that cost over $100,000 and made over 2,000 horsepower. And that takes real machine work okay real difficult complicated machine work um so i had a background in machine work when i opened jacob's playing gun club in the battlefield the first thing that happened was people started wanting to know where they could get their long-range rifles worked on or where they could get a new barrel and uh so i got on youtube and i looked at a few videos and i'm like holy crap this this is way simpler than any of the machine work i've ever done and uh, it just so happened that i stumbled onto a guy named gordy gritters who taught a you know, rifle building machine course. As it turns out, he's the most famous guy in the world for it. And he's had people from 13 different countries come to his house for, for classes. Uh, and he has trained some of the most famous gunsmiths in the country. There are guys that if you, if I told you he was the one that trained them, you would be shocked because you will never hear them admit that's where they learned to build guns. But uh, most of the people that you know as being really successful gun builders, he trained. They're just not quite as open about it as I am. I'm more than willing to admit that he, he's the one that taught me how to do it. Um, so I had a little, my, my first shop, if you want to call a shop was on the gun range and feedback or at uh, Jacob's Plain gun club. It was a 16 by 16 building that was made out of pallet racks and sheet metal with no air conditioning or heat. And that's where I worked for two years. I, I spent two years and I was busy from the day I opened the doors. I, I never ran out of work. No AC in Dallas. No. I've got a picture somewhere of my, the tumbler, you know, the, the media, the stainless steel media tumbler, and it's frozen solid, the top of it, it's just the, the water in there is just frozen solid. And uh, it was, it was not great. Uh, my bead blast cabinet was outside and it took me about an hour to bead blast a barrel, rain or shine, hot or cold. It was miserable. And uh, that sounds miserable. <laughs> but I got an opportunity to take a job down here on the coast where I'd wanted to retire my whole life. That job didn't really work out, but it got me down here and it, and it got me down here at a time that my business just exploded. And I rented a shop uh, five years ago down here and man, I got busy, busy. I mean, like eight months behind busy. And uh, so that's kind of how all that worked out. 
you know, I started out from day one focusing on building the most accurate rifles I could build. And perfection, or I don't, I don't want to use the word for perfection, but um, excellence is a decision. It's not a process. That, that makes any sense. Um, it's not, it's not, it's an attitude. It's not necessarily a technique. And uh, so I figured out as soon as I started building my own rifles after taking the class, that there were places to shortcut the whole process everywhere. And I realized that once you went down that road, there was no, there was no place to stop. And uh, so I just made the decision I wasn't gonna do that. And however long it took to build a barrel, cut a barrel is how long it took, and I was gonna do it the best I could do it. And as it turned out, that was the best decision I've ever made because I have been able to build a, a reputation as, you know, for building some of the most accurate rifles in the country. And uh, it, it's worked out for me. It does take me a little more time than it takes other people, but uh, it's, you know, I, when I send something out, it's got my name on it and I know it's the best it can be. So that's, that was the way I run my business. There are other people that do different things and I have no problem with that. So. Yeah, that sounds like the right, right way to do it, you know, with something that even to get a rifle built for super, super cheap, um, you know, it's still a bunch of money. So I'd rather, you know, invest in it correctly and uh, have someone that knows what the heck they're doing do it for me instead of, uh, you know, oh yeah, this is the third time I've done this. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you a story, Greg. This, this just happened recently. Oh Lord. I picked up some work from another shop. I do, I do work under the table for shops that you, you've heard of, Jennifer. Um, nobody knows I do their work, but I do their work. <laughs> uh, there are lots of secrets in the gun industry. And uh, so there was a barrel of action in there that, that the instruction said he just wanted the muzzle threaded. And the action was not tied on the barrel. So I loosened it up, to just kind of look at it because I don't really like anything goes through my shop. I'm going to, I'm going to check over thoroughly because I want to make sure it leaves there. It's right because mm -hmm. I could get blamed for it, even though I didn't touch it. Mm -hmm. I screwed the action back off the barrel about one turn and the action literally almost fell off. It was so loose. Um, somebody oh, had Lord. drastically undercut the tenon threads on the barrel. Oh no. And so I got the customer's name and I called him. And I said, sir, um, you mind me asking? Because I shop, I got the barrel from them. Like, we didn't do that. I said, I didn't think so. Um, so I called the guy and he says, well, there's a guy on this Facebook group that's kind of oh. known for building them 223 Valkyrie rifles. And I think he's a disabled vet. So I wanted to help him out. And uh I was like, well, that's cool. You know, I'm all about helping vets out, but uh, this, this guy ruined your barrel. This, this is not usable. Well, that's okay. You know, it, it, he wasn't bad. He's like, it's okay. I know he did the best he could on it. And um, so that's, I'm going to interject this at some point. So I might as well say it now and go ahead and, and offend the general masses. <laughs> Going back to what I said about some of the machine work I've done in the past, anybody who, who's honest, that's been in this business a long time that, you know, would not argue with what I'm about to say. The machine work that goes into building a really accurate rifle is very basic machine work. The tolerances are very tight and there are lots of places to screw up and I've screwed it up and everybody who's ever done it screwed it up. But anybody who thinks they're gunsmith is some kind of a genius because they can build a, a reasonably accurate rifle is wrong. Okay, it takes just a very basic knowledge of machining and the way that a, that a bullet performs and functions to make a rifle that shoots good. 
Now to get them up to that next level where they shoot, you know, 0 0.1, 0 0.2, which is kind of what I aim for, there's a little more to it than that, but it's it's still not, you know, I, I'm certainly not a genius. There's no there's no secret genius stuff in it. There's one thing I do that's a little bit secret stuff that I won't talk about that, that makes a big difference. But uh, and there are other people who do it, but mostly it's just laziness because they don't they don't want to do it. But uh, you know, if you're waiting more than four months for a rifle, you're just wasting your time because whoever you're waiting on doesn't know anything that a whole bunch of other people don't know. And I had a customer from uh, Detroit who has become a really good friend of mine. And he had a rifle built by a guy who's like the most famous hunting rifle builder in the country. And he waited one and a half years on this rifle, 18 months. Wow. And he got the rifle and it would not shoot a one inch group at hundred yards. And so he said, I'm not sending it back to the SOB. I waited 18 months for it, blah, 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 blah. So he sent it to me. I, he had taken a long range shooting course from me and met me. And so he said, he sent it to me and I looked at it and it really wasn't, it had some problems, but I've seen worse. Um, namely, it just wasn't throated correctly for the, the particular caliber, but the bedding work was really bad. And I said, I called him and I said, look, half of the stuff on this rifle looks like it was done by the best rifle builder in the country. And the other half looks like it was done by a 16 year old kid. And he said, you're not going to believe this. He said, but every time I called that guy's shop all summer long, his son answered the phone and he wasn't in the shop and his son is 15 or 16 years old. I said, yep, that's your answer. And that was exactly what has happened is, is so, you know, one of the things I would suggest to people is if you're going to hire somebody to, to build you a rifle, know who's building the rifle. Okay, obviously I'm a one man shop, so I do all my own work, but there are lots of shops that, that you know, George Gardner builds good rifles, but George doesn't build all rifles. That's, so I'm not saying you have to build your own rifles to be good at it, because George certainly builds some really great stuff. Um, so some of the larger shops can do good work. I'm just saying that you need to know who's building your rifle. And if they want more than four months to build it, you probably need to move on. Now there is, let me say this about that. Sometimes it takes, like when I was eight months out, it was because stocks and chassis were eight months out. It wasn't that I was eight months out. I just couldn't get the parts to build a rifle in less than eight months because we were in the Obama slam and, you know, it, it just was what it was. So it really wasn't that I was that backed up, although I was staying busy all the time. So, but, you know, like right now, it's six months to get a McMillan stock. I just ordered one. It's about 12 weeks to get an MPA chassis. Uh, and everything else, the actions and the other stuff, typically you can get about 90 to 120 days. Um, but, you know, six months, eight months to get the parts, that's fine. But if you if you're, think you're going to wait a year and a half and get something special that only the guy that you hired can build, you're, I promise you that that is not the case. So I would look around elsewhere. Agreed. Yeah, those are some absurd lead times. So after that story, I have two other stories I got to ask. One of them from Prentice. We'll get to that in a second. But also, you said you had a story about uh, Miss Seymour over here. Okay, so I'm I'm going to generalize here because I can't swear to the dates and times, but I'm pretty sure it was a couple of years ago, and I'm pretty sure it was the Gap Grind at KM, uh, which is one of KM's. Whether you go in the spring or you go in the fall, it's one of the hottest matches of the year. Mm -hmm. Sunday afternoon, we're all starting to kind of work our way around to the to the pavilion for the prizes and all that. And Greg, I look like I've been standing in a shower 
as do most of the other competitors. I mean, it's 92 degrees, 90% humidity. Mm -hmm. And here comes Miss Seymour walking up the road towards the pavilion. And she looks like she's gotten ready for a Vogue photo shoot. She's dry, she's clean. She doesn't have one bead of sweat on her. So <laughs> perhaps she comes from an entire family that does not perspire, I don't know. But I want to know how a woman could look like she just stepped out of the shower and got ready for a date at four o'clock on Sunday afternoon at the Gap Grind. Jennifer, we want answers. <laughs> I have no idea. Hold up. <laughs> I, I do sweat and I do stink and I'm pretty sure every time I've been at K&M I smelled like a horse by the time we got to the awards ceremony. <laughs> Hold on. I, I, I'll show you her secret here one second. Let's see here. Where? Is this going to be the picture of me and Gina and Ray? Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, there's you and Kenny Lynn. Oh, this one pretty Lynn. funny. Oh no! I think this is this is the year. It's the year that you fell asleep. There we go. Um. So this is how the pretty ladies always smell so good at the match. So I'm not sure how good you guys could see that, um, but that's Jennifer and Regina and Ray. They are having a Febreze party in the K&M parking lot. <laughs> Thank uh, you, Greg. You 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 solved a lot of problems that have been nagging me for years. We febrezed ourselves. <laughs> yep, there, there, there's, there's another one. You got to get the backside real good. <laughs> oh, ouch. Yeah, you don't want to miss that part. Yep. And then, of course, here, here, here's Ray just looking like super, super style in there with that, with that Febreze. With her Febreze. <laughs> so that is how the pretty girls smell good at k well, They're going to the K&M parking lot, changing clothes, freshening up, Febrezing, and then showing up at the pavilion looking like... Uh, they're ready to go uh, to a photo shoot. I get it now. Okay, well, cool. We, You know what? It was worth coming on the show just to solve that mystery. <laughs> Everybody's going to go buy Febreze. <laughs> it is. It is and it, it makes that eight-hour drive home overnight so much more pleasant. No, so, what makes the drives home better is stopping at a truck stop and buying a shower. Yeah. That is what makes drives home better. That, 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 that was this guy. This guy's a genius here. She's like, what, what are we doing in the truck stop? I was like, we gonna go and buy us some showers. You know, just like- It's wait. awesome. Walk it, up there. I'm like, I need a shower. $11. They provide towels. Two towels and a washcloth. Mm -hmm. It's awesome. I, uh, I always just got out in the parking lot at K&M, stripped completely down and toweled off with some water, you know, and then as long as I could get dry and put on dry underwear, because I promise you there's not a pair of dry underwear in that whole place at four o'clock on Sunday afternoon. Well, y'all all do that. The men all go out there and like change their shirts in the middle of the parking lot. And I'm like, I can't change my shirt out here, but you'll see. <laughs> Listen, not, not one of us would be offended. <laughs> not doing that. So another, another story. Uh, uh, Prentice wants to know um, if you have a story about dessert in Tennessee with Jeremy Swanee, Wink, and Ferguson. <laughs> I don't know why they won't let this die. <laughs> so Dave Ferguson, Prentice, two of the best guys on the planet, you know, and Jeremy Swanee, and, and we were at dinner at the uh, 
uh, wherever Dave always stays in Jackson at the Hilton or whatever it is. And, you know, he's a pilot, so he can afford the Hilton. I'm down at the, like the, the slash and cut budget suites down there, you know, where you, you have to carry a gun in and out of your room. So, and it came down for dinner and I thought, you know what, I'll get some dessert. And, and they had, so I'm not a big dessert person and whatever they had wasn't really one of my favorites. It was like pecan pie or something. And so I said, well, I don't know if I want pecan pie, but plus it's $8. And so I, I just don't think I'm gonna pay $8 for pecan pie. Well, Jeremy Swanning just goes freaking berserk. Well, I'll buy your damn pecan pie, you cheap bastard. You, you won't spend $8. Good Lord, you're down here spending $500 shooting in a match. You spent $1,500 to get here. You don't want to spend $8 on dessert. They thought that was really funny. <laughs> it is funny the things precision rifle shooters in general we are like tight with money we're like no i don't want to you know pay i can't think of anything but something that's trivial you know i'm not paying for that i'm not paying for coffee but then we have like really expensive rifles and tripods and shooting bags and we don't think twice about like well yeah i need that that's how much it is i mean yeah i got i got called on that procedure, uh, one of the last times that I shot in Baker, I was staying at that little budget inn that's just north of I-10 there by Walmart. When I pulled in, there was this younger man and woman standing there, probably in their mid-20s. And uh, I kind of nodded at them, went to my room. And, uh, and it wasn't 10, 15 minutes, there was a knock on the door and there was the woman standing there. I said, hey, what's up? And she said, I'm what's up. And I said, oh, okay, I need to get some money. You know how I can get some money? Can I come in and can we talk about me getting some money? I said, no, you may not. <laughs> wow, that's pretty forward. So that was when I moved across the street to, uh, to the other hotel. That was when I decided that, you know, just like what you said, I'd always scrimped on hotel rooms and, you know, $3,000 scope, but a $20, $25 night hotel. And, uh, that was when that program changed in Crestview. Um, I don't recommend the cheap hotels in Crestview now, unless you know you want to, you know, help a. a young... I don't think Swanee does either. Yeah, I don't think Swanee <laughs> likes cheap hotels either. I was, uh, I was about to say that's like Americana level bad. Yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, it was interesting. So uh, that's the only time that's ever really happened to me. But uh, yeah, it is funny what you know. You have to. Well, you you know you. We spend money on things that are important to us. You know, I buy clothes once a year. You know, big deal to me. I'm either naked or I'm not. I don't really see an in-between there. So there is. So my work pants, I bought them all at the same time. And uh, all of a sudden, they've started becoming partially naked, as in the crotch is blowing out of them. Yep. So I'm buying new work pants now because I wait until, you know, little holes here and there, that's fine. But all of a sudden, it's like, you know, about a month ago, the first pair of pants just let it rip. I'm like, something is like small, cold, and uncomfortable right now. What is going on? And I, I reached down to try and warm it up, and there's a hole there. Maybe if you would pull them up to they, your waist where they, they're supposed to be, the crotch my, wouldn't rip out. They are at my waist, and my polo's tucked in. Anyway. Anyway. So I've got, I've got a, a story to tell you all about tonight, because... My wife is awesome. She's the smartest person I've ever met. She's not just because she has a number of college degrees, but she's just generally very smart. And uh, 
so we're sitting at dinner tonight and she says, so what is the show going to be about that you're on tonight? And I said, well, honey, tonight's episode's going to kind of be about me. And she looks me dead in the eye and says, why would they want to have a show about you? <laughs> and so that's when I realized I wasn't having tacos for dinner. I was having humility. <laughs> so I appreciate y'all listing me as a legend in your little promo. But I'm not a legend. Uh, you know, legend is just another word for old. A guy's been around a long time. And people don't know why he hasn't died yet. So they start referring him to him as a legend. But uh, yeah, she did not have any understanding at all as to why anybody would want to have me on. You know, That's it. awesome. Oh, it is. Yeah, she's she puts up with no crap at all. So. Well, the things that keep you humble are your spouses and your kids, right? You can't. Yeah, they will. Yeah. I mean, kids will say whatever. If I came in and said I'd cured cancer, she'd say, "Well, if you're done with that, can you mow the yard? My parents are coming over, and I don't want it to be a mess." You know, it's <laughs> you know, whatever, whatever she's got going, she needs to get around here. You know, she has a full-time job. I, you know, I work kind of semi-part-time, full-time at what I do. So I try to keep her happy. You got to keep each other happy. So you shot long-range competitions all over the country. Um, so tell us a little bit about that, like how, so how many years you've been shooting? And then I'd like to hear how you've seen the sport evolve over time and where you see the future of this sport. Yeah, I, uh, I started in 2012. Now I went to my first match in 2012. I won't use the word competed because that would really be an obscene exaggeration to say that I competed in that match. I showed up with an FN 308 and two five round magazines and a probably a maybe a $1,200 Bushnell scope. I think maybe, may, may not have even been that good. Um, and I got DNQ'd for a negligent discharge. I was, in all fairness to me, I, I was crawling through a very confined barricade house that we don't even use. You wouldn't even see one of those at a match now because it, you know, you would have the same problem. We got enough new shooters, you would have negligent discharges because it was, Kind of one of them where your body was one way and your legs were the other way and you were trying to pull the money. So I, I didn't uh, I didn't make it but till about noon the first day. And I have never been so glad to be disqualified from anything in my life because I, I was not doing well. And uh, I had no idea what I was getting into when I went there. And uh, it didn't get better anytime soon, even though I changed equipment and I got a uh, six five Creedmoor, and I I bought a rock solid chassis, which back then was, and Todd Reynolds came out with a rock solid chassis, and Chase Stroud and all them guys had them, and that was like the coolest thing ever in a stiller action, and and use the best you could do was a rock solid chassis and a, a stiller action, uh, and a stiller action still a very good action. I use them all the time, but uh, you know I I I. I I think I'm a pretty good long range instructor. And I, and I only say that because it took me a very long time to get good at shooting. I didn't learn this uh, in, a, in a year or two or three. There are people and I have no problem with the fact that they've done this, but they've had the ability financially to go to the best classes, the best instructors, hire the best instructors one on one to teach them to shoot. And so they've been able to come up in a year or two and become really competitive. Uh, they still have to go to matches. You can only become a good competition shooter by going to competition. So you can't shortcut it in completely. But, you know, having the best shooters in the country coach you, that's certainly a good thing. I didn't, I didn't have any of that, uh, which is okay. Most people don't have any of that. And uh, so 
it took me a long time, probably four years before I really started to figure things out. I had some equipment issues early on that really cost me. I mean, really, in, the, in, in looking back, that was the time when I had the money and the time to really commit myself to long range shooting. And I had so many equipment issues that it was just a waste of time for me to even go to matches. So, yeah, I don't know. Somebody the other day told me that if you join the PRS now, your, your number is 7,000 and something, 6,000 and something. And mine is 128. So um, I, I've been at it a while. I uh, started, you know, it was just a bunch of guys from Oklahoma and Texas that like to talk crap to each other. Uh, and then Rich Emmons said, you know what, we need to form some kind of an organization. And then there were a few guys like Shannon and Brian from Florida. And it, but, but it wasn't a big group. And the same five or eight guys won every match. I mean, you had Wade Studeville, Jonathan Berry, uh, Gordy Richard, uh, Jordy Richardson, and uh, Chase Stroud. I mean, you had literally had eight or ten guys. One of the eight, ten guys was going to win every match. And they knew stuff that none of the rest of us knew. And there was no sharing of information outside of, the, of that little group. You were either in that group, you were out of that group. And if you were out of that group, they weren't talking. Uh, in fact, I stumbled onto some ballistic software one time. Uh, and I mentioned to Brian Morgan that I was using this. And he looked at me like I had just given him, had just spoken out loud the nuclear codes. Like, why would you say that out loud where people can hear you? because he had been using this as a software the Marine Corps was using. Uh, I think it's called Horace. I think it was Horace. And uh, so there was not a lot of information being shared. It was very much clickish. Um, I'll tell you what I thought the PRS was going to be, and I was 100% wrong. And I'm glad I was 100% wrong. I thought it was going to end up being 100 of the best shooters in the country. It was going to end up on TV. It was going to end up being a very elite thing for people that had a lot of money. And beyond that, it wasn't going to grow a whole lot. But at this time was back when uh, Top Shot and a couple of those other really bad gun shows were on TV. And I'm thinking, man, the PRS is better than this. We, we could put these PRS matches on TV and it'd be way better than the, the crap that's on there. So this is a, this is a gimme. They're going to put this on TV and Rich Emmons is going to become a millionaire when they do. And it's all going to work out. And there's going to be a hundred really good shooters. And um, hopefully I'll be one of those hundred shooters, which was about as big a pop dream as you could ever have. Um, but that's what I thought the PRS was going to become. And of course it got sold to the five man group and then it got sold again and it got sold again. And I don't remember who said this. I actually, I, I'm pretty sure I know who said this, but I'm not going to quote him on it. But one of the people who at one time owned the PRS said, you know, we bought this to make it better, but that has proven to be almost impossible. And so while I don't agree with everything that's been done by any of the owners of the PRS, I will say that having run my own shooting organization, that there is not a more thankless job in the world. None. You can't, you know, I learned in my deal is you do what's fair, you do what's right for the most people. You know, what, what, is, what is fair to most everybody? Uh, you're not ever going to be fair to everybody because people are just going to have their own opinions about what they want done. But um, where, where I was wrong and where I'm glad I'm wrong is the PRS has become a family sport. It's become fathers and daughters and mothers and sisters and kids. And, and I think that's the greatest thing in the world because that's the only way that you keep anything going is you bring in young people to it. Um, and so 
if you'd have told me when this thing started, we were going to have a match of 400 people, I'd have said you were out of your mind. First of all, that's impossible because we used to have 80 people and it used to take till five o'clock Saturday and Sunday to get it done. I mean, if we were done by five o'clock on Saturday, sometimes it was six. And uh, so that tells you how much just the overall efficiency of running the matches has grown. Uh, but uh, that's been a, a really good thing. And I, you know, Shannon Kay, who owns it now, is, is really gets, you know, he gets a bad rap. Uh, but again, because it's a thankless job and he's trying to make money with it, which is fair enough, because trust me, anybody that would do that job for free has truly lost their mind because it's, it's, a, it's a, probably a 60-hour-a-week job and it's a thankless 60-hour-a-week job. And so the fact that Shannon wants to run the PRS where he gets some money out of the deal, I don't have a problem with it. I think that's fine. Um, I don't, I can't say I agree with everything that he's done, but I wouldn't agree with everything anybody that was running it has done. That's nor, nor would everybody else. I mean, you're just, that's just not the way the world works. Um, if he's doing what's in the best interest of the organization and, and the majority of the people, then I think that's great. And if it makes me mad or you mad or somebody else mad, well, that's just tough. You know, uh, you, you've got to do what's in the best interest of the most people and you've got to keep the thing going and you've got to keep it safe. Um, so I'm glad that he's got it. Uh, he's going to learn some things having, you know, a military background. There's a, the, the military, I wasn't in the military because I joined the fire department when I was 21, 22. But the military teaches you know, a lot of good things about life. You know, the guys, I have a lot of friends that are special forces guys and Navy SEALs. And, and they have a lot of, 98% of everything they learn in the military is absolutely amazing. But it's not the same as running a business. The military is not a business, just like the fire department was a business. We used to say the fire department was a business would be broke in a week. And uh, so there's going to be a transition for Shannon, I think, from being, you know, a professional soldier to being a professional businessman, which is what he's doing. But he's a really smart guy and he'll figure it out. But he's not going to figure it out with making a few hiccups along the way. And on top of the fact that he's in charge of something that's growing at a rate that's just almost astronomical. I mean, this thing's only been going for what, seven years or something? Um, so, uh, you know, he's he's doing a, a good job, I think, for, for the time being, whether everybody thinks he is or not. I would, I would encourage them that there's two things that I will never do again. I, I hate to see never, but I'm going to promise you, you will never see me do either of these two things. I will never own a gun range again, even if you gave it to me. In fact, if you paid me to take it, I wouldn't own a gun range again. <laughs> The other thing is I will never be a match director for PRS match again. I did that. I wanted to do it. It's on my resume. I'm glad I did it. But there is that's just a miniature version of being the, the owner of the PRS. You're basically the owner of the PRS for a weekend because you're the representative of the PRS. And I did it. And it went okay. Could have been better. Could have been worse. I've certainly been to worse matches than what I've had on. But uh, wasn't perfect. But overall, I, was, I, thought, I thought it was pretty decent. But... Uh, you know, people need to probably temper their their bravery on the internet a little bit with some of their comments towards match directors and towards the management of the PRS and the NRL and all of that. Because until you have walked in those shoes, I promise you, you can't even fathom how difficult it is to try to please what is now, what, two, 3,000 active shooters in the PRS, and you're trying to please 2,000 people. So good luck with that, okay? Um, so that's um, kind of a long-winded answer, but it, it's, it's something that, that I feel like somebody needed to say, and I'm, I'm not, you know, afraid to say it. I'm, 
I'm the guy that wasn't afraid to, you know, wasn't afraid to turn down dinner is his uh, calm pop or $8. And I've, you know, been hearing about it for 10 years. So. I'm going to get on my high horse for one second about that uh, Facebook. I wish that people, instead of getting on Facebook and running their mouth, would go to the person. Mm-hmm. Like so many more things could be fixed. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, I'll be honest, I've disagreed with decisions that Shannon has made before, and I did not post about it on Facebook. I emailed him and I said, I don't really like this. This is why he called me and we talked it, you know, talked about it in person, you know, and we agreed to disagree. You know, I was like, respectfully, I still disagree, but you know, that I'm still shooting PRS and all that, you know, but. I don't understand, and that's not to toot my own horn, but I don't understand why everybody can't just go to the person and talk through it instead of keyboard commandoing it. I think we would get a lot more done, and I think the sport would get a lot more respect from outsiders if people would just man up and talk face-to-face instead of typing about it. My, my pet peeve is being disrespectful to ROs who come out there. They don't get paid. They spend all weekend in the heat. And I've seen shooters yell and scream at them. And I've gotten a little, I've gotten a little horsey with them, but, but never really to the point that I've seen other people where they're throwing gear and screaming, literally screaming and cussing, which if it had been my match, they would have literally wouldn't even have finished the yelling before they were out of the match. It should be like baseball. You're out of here. Exactly. That's the, if it were my match, that's what would have happened. But, and uh, it should be just as dramatic. We should be able to make it all dramatic. You're out. I rode a couple matches this past year um, for the first time, and it was enlightening. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. So, you know, it, it is what it is. There, you know, I don't like easy matches. That's one thing that I vehemently disagree with. But I understand why they're doing it because it allows people to go to a match. Nobody wants to go to a match and, and, and hit 15 targets all weekend. Man, some of the matches we had early on, the winner would typically shoot between 65 and 75%. That was the winner. Nowadays, they're 95, 98% at some of the matches and they're designed to be that way so that the people who aren't great can still hit quite a few targets and it, it keeps them invested and keeps them interested. That is a really smart thing to do. Is from as from if I owned the PRS, that would be the really the smart way to run it. I personally just don't like it because I grew up in an era where seventy five percent would win you the match, and at some level, some very subconscious level, that's kind of where I shoot. I go to K and I'll shoot seventy five percent. I'll finish one hundred twentieth. I can go to Core or Altus or whatever it is, and I'll shoot seventy five percent. I'll finish in the top thirty, and it's really funny because my percentage almost never changes regardless of how hard the match is. And, uh, you know, the matches where I finished top 20, top 10, top 30, whatever. Uh, the funny thing is I can't tell you anything different about those matches than the matches I finished really bad in. I, I don't know. I don't know that I know what makes you shoot really good one weekend. Um, I'm kind of getting off topic, but, uh, you know, it's, I just, as a general rule, I would prefer to see hard matches, but I wish we could do like golf and have golf tees. Like, so this is the pro tees. This is the amateur tees. This is the senior tees. If they want to, my dad still won't play from the senior tees. He would rather (laughs) play from the big boy tees and get really mad and throw golf clubs than to move up to the senior tees. But I mean, it's his choice. So I kind of wish we could have like, okay, if you want to shoot in this division, you can shoot from these tees. That would be kind of cool. 
and kind of have it, you know, harder for some of the, I'll, I'll be honest, the AG cup going and watching that match was one of the most fun things I did last year. And it's because that match was hard and that match really, really challenged some people that are used to getting nines and tens on every stage and they were getting zeros and ones. And I think it was, it was interesting to watch the mental game with that and what it did to them. And, and like, that was some of the quietest I've ever seen some of those people <laughs> just I mean they were just beat up you know they, they just they felt... going over to the, the other shooters and offering tips and helpful suggestions on how to place their bag on the next stage is that what you're saying uh, well and they weren't supposed to help each other um like no wind call sharing and all that you know for the spirit of it which I thought was good because then everybody kind of had to do on their own I mean I'll admit I I'm always like a crutch to every I'm not a crutch I'm using everyone else as a crutch like so how's that wind <laughs> you know and I need to get better about not doing that and just watching it and, and if it eats my lunch it eats my lunch but I'll learn more well and that's you know I talked about earlier about what I thought that the PRS would become and when Tom Fuller started that AG cup thing that's what I thought the PRS would become and Tom Fuller's a really smart guy and uh, I suspect that if anything's ever going to end up on TV, that he's probably geared that whole thing to make it television friendly because I think he's that smart of a guy. And uh, I think that has some real potential in driving the sport overall. You know, the AG Cup's always going to be probably kind of a limited participation thing, but it will drive the interest in the sport overall. And, uh, you know, that's, uh, that's what we need to, to a degree, but uh yeah, it's, it's, you know, that, and that's what a hard match does is it really tells you where you are as a shooter. And uh, I like that. I, I, you know, just like you said, you figure out what you're not good at and what you're good at and where you're weak and where you're strong. And uh, so I'm kind of the same way. I, I, I do want to say this because you brought this up and I, I, it's something that I meant to say. If I had to look back to my, my competition career, if you want to call it a career, whatever you want to call it, um, the single biggest mistake that I continuously made was paying too much attention to what the people in my squad who shot before me got on the wind. I cannot tell you the number of times. I can remember more than once being the last shooter in the squad and every single person in the squad held between a half and three quarters of a mil on a target and I got and it was, I missed six shots before I figured out the wind had died. And I would come off the stage with a four and the R would be, man, I'm so sorry. The wind just died completely when you walked up there. I mean, it literally just died. Mm -hmm. And I had it in my mind that it had to be between half and three quarters. So I'd go half here, three quarter there, half here, three quarter there, three quarter in the middle, half in the middle, half to the right, half to the left. And, and you know, that's, a, you have to take into consideration what everybody else is, is doing. But you also have to have a plan for, that not even being close you know we do wind charts where we do what we think it's going to do and then we we do what we don't think it's going to do one way and then we think what we don't think it's going to do the other way so you kind of got a bracket there is what you want to do you want to you want to have a wind hold for what you think the wind's going to be then plus three miles an hour and minus three miles an hour so that you've got some some wind hold and then you can take those outside wind holds and you can move them either to the upwind or downwind edge of the target so you end up actually with about, gosh, I can't do the math, but it's like 10 or 12 different options that are really easy to implement in the stage. Um, 
but man, I, I, I'm telling you that you will get you will get screwed more more times listening to other people. And uh, a person who shall remain nameless, I was in one of those squats where everybody's like one mil, one mil, one one point two, one mil, and this guy comes off and goes two and a half mils. <laughs> it was like his second match, and I'm like, but he was dead serious. I mean, he really thought it was two and a half mils. I don't know where he got that number, but. I, that's just an example of, you know, some guy behind him who doesn't know what I know about that guy and who's like at his first match goes two and a half mils and here he goes up to, you know, oh no. So, uh, you know, there's there's some people out there that can teach you. We, we spend a lot of time on the classes that I teach about really, really where I get to the students where they're just constantly thinking wind. Um, and it, it takes, it took me a long time for that, that whole thing to click. And there's still people a lot better at it than I am. But uh, once it clicks, it, it, it gets reasonably easy to be close. I won't say you're going to hit it every time, obviously, but uh, you're usually not too far off. Uh, but again, there, there are people that are way better at it than I am. So that's my, that's my one advice for competition is don't, don't put too much, too much into what the guy before you did. That's, uh, that's really good advice. For, for me, it's always been the thing that would screw me most is positionally watching what other people do because like I know my body I'm like man you know there was there was one stage I was shooting with a lot of a lot of really good people um a lot of people that have won matches won championships stuff like that and every single freaking person was shooting a tripod one person got a zero with it one person shot decent with it, but they were all you know everybody was shooting and I was like I I, I, I don't think that's the easiest way to shoot this. I went up there with my Armageddon Gear OG Game Changer bag. Threw it up there. Nine out of ten, which is good for me. Like, that's really good for me. And I, I was not unstable. It's just like I took my time to line up those shots instead of taking a minute of the minute and a half to mess with the damn tripod trying to fit into this little trailer. So, you know, sometimes thinking for yourself really helps a lot. So back to advice for new shooters. Um, what advice would you give to new shooters when it comes to equipment? Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump back just for one second because I'm going to get this off my chest too. Let it had, it, had it been up to me, there would be no freaking tripods. Okay, I would have done away with that the first day it started. The <laughs> first guy that ever shot using a tripod for support would have been the last guy who ever shot using a tripod for support. <laughs> But the reason they've let it fly is just what I said a while ago, because it allows people who are not really great shooters to do fairly well on stages. I promise if you take all the bags away, you're going to see, you're going to see the same people winning the matches. Now, somewhere about 25th or 30th place, you're going to see a point ledge that, that's going to look like Niagara Falls, okay? Because you're going to realize that there's a lot of people who, in all fairness, don't have, you know, when I was doing really well, I was practicing 15 hours a week. And I was shooting 10,000 rounds a year. I went through six barrels. Um, and that's, that's what it takes to be competitive. And there are people who are spending a quarter of a million dollars a year shooting PRS. I, I know this for a fact. Um, and that's fine. I mean, they, they've got the money to do it. They want to do it. I have no problem with that. But the bags are really what I'm not opposed to the bags. I think you should get one bag and it can be a, a game changer bag I mean, whatever bag you want but you should get one bag and that should be pretty much it one bipod uh and the rest of it should be you you know it should be skill 
And, uh, but, but that's not really in the interest of promoting the sport because it, it makes the amateur shooters, again, back to hitting, you know, 25, 30%. Um, there were people back in the old days at Rifles Only who would show up and they wouldn't hit, just to say it was 200 rounds for the match, they might hit 25 targets all weekend. And some of those people would be army snipers. I mean, it was, it was that difficult. I, I remember seeing a guy in a restaurant down there one night that was an army sniper. And uh, he said, who the hell thinks this stuff up? <laughs> I, I've, never, I've never even heard of some of the stuff y'all are doing in these matches. And I said, it hard. So, um, okay, so my advice for new shooters, this is a fairly topic. And, and, it, it, and on the other hand, it's fairly simple. <clears throat> what I teach my students is this. The goal of the long range shooter is that when you miss a shot, it is more wind or less wind, period, the end. Now, that sounds pretty easy, but let's, let's look at what it takes for that to occur. You have to have perfect fundamentals, okay? I see students who miss off the right side of the target. I call a wind correction and then they miss off the left side of the target. Okay, that's not, that's not the win. That's them jerking the trigger. And I, I don't even have to ask, I know that's what it is. So it can't be your fundamentals that caused you to miss. It can't be your velocity. You absolutely have to have your velocity and your dope clock. Otherwise you play what I call, what I used to play early in my, my days of competing the 360 degree guessing game, which is where you're missing and you, it's no longer more left or more right. It's more left, right, up or down. I don't know where I'm at. Um, and you cannot do that. That's, you're wasting your time even showing up. And I, I see a lot of people who have not figured out how to really truly, you know, dial their, their rifles in down range the way that we do. Um, now that we have the magneto speeds, it's become much easier. In the old days, the chronographs weren't really all that great. And uh, not that many people know how to, to uh, true everything, go, you know, true down range. So in order to accomplish what I'm talking about, you've got to have a rifle that never malfunctions. Okay, you cannot have a malfunction in PRS. If you do the math in the gap grind, every shot you drop, you're going to go backwards 15 places. In an average match, you're going to go back five places. Okay, I promise you, do the math. So if you drop three shots a day because you have malfunctions where your rifle doesn't feed and you don't get off 10 shots, you get off nine shots. So that's six shots you missed. You do the math on that and it gets pretty ugly. You're, you're now 95th assuming you hit every other, every other target. Um, I know that sounds a little bit harsh, but I promise you if you look at the math, it will work out pretty close to that. Um, so we've got to have a rifle that performs flawlessly. We've got to have fundamentals that perform flawlessly. Then we've got to have ammunition that is within about, this is where people get a little crazy. I, I can tell you from experience, 10 to 15, even 20 feet per second. If you can have an SD that's not too much, 20 feet per second or under, uh, you're going to be pretty good for the most part, unless you're shooting, you know, one MOA targets or something. But uh, that's not that difficult to get to if you use good components. And I, and I will tell you this, early in my reloading career, I was just the worst reloader ever. I mean, I couldn't get my SDs under like 55 or 60 or 40. And all of a sudden, one day something magical happened. I bought some Lapua brass. 
I bought some Lapua brass and I use the same bullets I've been using, the same powder I've been using, the same measure I've been using, and my SD dropped a 10 overnight. So you will never get good ammunition out of cheap components. Um, the best thing a new shooter could do is to buy a caliber that you can buy factory match ammo for and no even go down the road of reloading because reloading is a almost a profession in and of itself. It's not super difficult, but all of us who do it and have done it, we've all screwed it up every way that it can be screwed up. You know, I like to joke. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I like to tell people, you know, if you don't put the primers in, the powder falls right out the bottom of those cases. And uh, my record, my record for having to unseat bullets is 298 uh, for whatever reason. I don't remember what I did. That I didn't figure out until 298 were done. We are one round off of each other. Ah, high five. 297. Yeah. I loaded 300 rounds for a brand new barrel, a brand new action. Took it to... Uh, K and M in hundred percent humidity. Three kaboom. Yeah. So my advice to a new shooter is is go ahead and get, you know, you either need to to just run the cheap stuff you've got and see see whether you like this or not. It's not for everybody. You know, it's like we talked about when you hit some of the thousand yards, you either think, huh, or it's the greatest thing that ever happened to you and you're completely hooked. So um Make sure it's for you before you, you, you know, you start spending money. But if you're going to get into it, go ahead and get a good rifle, get a good chassis, uh, get a good optic. Uh, remind me later. Let's, we'll talk, make a note to talk about optics later, Greg. I'll make me a note. Um, yeah, make a note to remind me. Remind me. So, so you got to have good ammunition. You got to have a flawless feeding rifle, and you've got to have a good scope. And uh, I'm not going to get big on this topic right now, but there are a lot of scopes out there that when you start running box tests on them, you would be shocked at the price of some of the scopes that, you know, the, the, the bullet kind of goes out and down and then it just never comes back. Um, and, and some fairly expensive scopes that that's pretty common with. And, I, and we'll get into that a little later. I'll tell you some things about the optics industry that uh, you, you may not know. But uh, so just to get to the point where more wind or less wind. We've had to perfect our fundamentals, our ammunition, our rifle, and our optic. So assuming that you go buy a good optic and you buy good ammunition, that's really why I would say don't get involved in hand loading unless you're already a really good hand loader. Um, stay away from that. There's good six millimeter and six five Creedmoor and even some other rounds out there now that you can shoot. Um, and focus on learning to shoot. Uh, the big problem I see with competitors, if you're using a, a $500 rifle and a $500 scope, then yes, you've got some for equipment improvement and, you're, and your equipment's limiting what you can do. But I see guys trading night forces for Bushnells, for Leopolds, for impact actions, for defiance actions, for Curtis actions. And it, it's just a complete waste of time and money. Okay, any of that equipment will function well enough to win a match. So once you get to a point where you've got a good equipment, quit changing equipment. Okay, throw, throw the credit card in the trash and learn to shoot what you've got. Um, because you're not going to buy your way into being a PRS shooter. Spend that money on ammunition and time on the range. Um, I used to shoot about 200 to 300 rounds, live rounds a week when I was doing really well. Um, 
And you think about the cost of that on top of a match every other weekend and another 300 rounds, and then how many rounds you're gonna get 2000 rounds of a barrel. So uh, it's, it's a commitment of time and effort. And that's, it doesn't matter what sport you're in for the most part. There are the people who put in the work and do well at it. And there's the people who won't put in the work and they just keep changing gear, hoping that the gear will eventually get them a few more points. Um, but as a new shooter, buy the best equipment you can buy and then just leave it alone. You know, once you've got good ammunition, good scope, good rifle, uh, you know, focus on you and, and quit worrying about what somebody who finished first place is using. Um, I've seen Matt Rousseau win matches with, you know, worn out barrels and, you know, all sorts of things, bad ammunition. And uh, so, you know, it's not, in the end, it's about the shooter. So, so you feel it is definitely more the Indian than the arrow. Got to have a functional arrow that's, that's decent, but it's more the Indian than the arrow. Uh, what, what I'm saying is you have to know when, when you miss a shot that it's you. And the only way you can know that is to have your equipment. You need to have your equipment sorted out so that when you miss, you knew it was, it was more wind or less wind. Okay, your velocity was on. You didn't miss higher low. Um, and, and you didn't jerk the trigger and pull yourself off one side of the target and then make an adjustment and pull yourself off the other side of the target. So it's really, you can't have one or the other. You really have to have both. You have to pretty much, if you're gonna be competitive, you've gotta have flawless equipment. You've gotta have flawless fundamentals and you've got to be able to, you know, I tell people all the time, look, guys who are good at long range shooting competitions, miss shots. We just don't miss two in a row very often. We're really good at seeing what happened to making a correction. And that's really the only thing that separates us from everybody else is that, is that as we're running a, a, a line of targets going out, we can make adjustments. So we make it a, our, our 500 yard wind call is off a little bit. So we adjust that. And then we have to make an adjustment on the 600 yard wind call that we were going to use because now our 500 was off a little bit. And we're able to do that in, in you know, tenths of seconds. And that's really what separates the good competition shooters from everybody else is just the ability to make those corrections. So it's not about being perfect all the time. It's about firing that first shot. And each, each shot that you fire in a stage is a data point. And it's, it's information that you're inputting into a database. And so with every shot, your database becomes a little more reliable. So, you know, first target's three miles an hour, second target's four miles an hour, third target's three miles an hour, you know, and so you're, you can start to trust it a little bit more the more information you get as you go out. But, uh, but those data points have to be accurate. And, and the only way that can be is if, you're, if your equipment's running flawlessly and if you're running flawlessly and you can trust the information that you're getting back. Otherwise, it's bad information in, bad information out. You're using bad information to make a correction and that correction is going to be even further off now because you used a shot that wasn't off because of wind to correct in the first place. Does that make sense? Very much so. So to get really good equipment to where it is, you know, where you can just be relying on looking at the wind and adjusting your wind, you need a good gunsmith. How can the average Joe, you know, like when I got into this sport, I didn't know anyone at first. So I didn't know who was good and who wasn't. And I've not had any bad stories. So I've, everything has gone well. But for somebody getting into it that doesn't know who's who of PRS, um, how can they vet a gunsmith to determine if they're, you know, making solid, you know, quality work? 
it's a, it's it's easy and it's complicated. You know, obviously the guys who have been in business a while, who have a good reputation, uh, who have a lot of people in the PRS. You know, I don't sponsor other PRS. I'm one guy. I used to have some shooters that I sponsored, and they were really good. Um, David McNeil out of Oregon, who uh, is also a fire department captain. He's one of the best shooters I've ever seen. Uh, and I, I was glad to sponsor him. And, uh, but we're, we're, it's kind of a loaded question because when you say what's a good gunsmith, you also, <clears throat> what I always like to talk to people about is what is accuracy? Okay, somebody says the rifle's accurate. So I'm gonna get on my soapbox here for a little bit and talk about what accuracy is and what it isn't. But, I don't want to get too far off the topic, but <clears throat> usually you can kind of tell a good gunsmith from a bad gunsmith because you'll see quite a few people using them. Um, they have a reputation within the community. There are people who try to come into the PRS community strictly to make money and they never make any money because they were not part of the community to begin with. Pretty much all the people in the PRS community who make a living off of this were already there before they ever went into whatever business they're in. Okay, um, you look at a lot of the businesses that have spawned from the PRS, like David Weiss didn't make wee bad bags when he started the PRS. He just realized there was a market for bags and, and started building them. Um, uh, you know, that same thing probably with Tom Fuller. And um, so, you know, you, you need to, to, I would just suggest using, if you're going to, first of all, use a gunsmith that knows how to do what you do. Okay, like I'm, I'm really well known for, for building seven 300s. Uh, which is just a 300 wind magnet down to seven millimeter. And it's not a super complicated thing, but, and I get a lot of people from across the country who've had them built by other gunsmiths and they would not shoot. And that's a pretty easy thing to get to shoot really good. I've never had one that didn't shoot under 0.2. And uh, so, you know, you kind of, but, but then there's the guy I talked about earlier who waited a year and a half for this legendary hunting rifle guy to build his rifle. So one of the things I would ask is who's going to build my rifle? Are you going to build my rifle? If you're not going to build my rifle, who's going to build your who's going to build my rifle? And I would also say, when is my rifle realistically going to be ready? I don't mean when some pipe green number, but when can you actually think you can get me my rifle? Um, I will not ever promise a delivery date. I always and anybody who would promise a delivery date has not been in this business very long because, uh, God forbid, MPA or or Macmillan or somebody should burn to the ground, but I mean, shit happens. I mean, you know, I, I could, I could, there was times that if, you know, MPA or Macmillan had burned down, I'd have been out of business. I mean, I had, I had 16, 17 chassis or stocks ordered at one time. Um, and then there was the time that all of the rifle builders, I mean, all of the barrel builders years ago got bad steel and all of a sudden everybody's rifles were, uh, barrels were going out 600 rounds. So you cannot promise a delivery date unless you have the components in hand because you're depending on a third party vendor to provide you with something. So be very leery of somebody who says they can promise you a date on a complete rifle build if they don't have those products in stock. If they have them in stock, not a problem. It takes three or four days to build a rifle at most. Um, but check around reputation. Uh, there are a lot of good rifle builders and this is where this is going to get a little a little tricky for me to talk about without really sounding like an ass and then, and then you know, because that's not what I'm trying to do. There's good and then there's really good. And because you have a rifle barrel 
that will shoot little bitty groups after you've spent a week doing low development. That is not, that is not really good. That's just good. Um, a good rifle barrel should really require no load development. I'm talking about the barrel, but the entire barrel action. There are some things you can do in a barrel action that will almost remove all of the barrel harmonics, which is what causes the need for uh, load development. The last five years I shot, I didn't do load development. Beyond, I want to run 2850, 2950, 3000, 3050. But as far as any of those numbers changing the accuracy of my rifle, absolutely zero, none. Didn't matter. Um, the other thing that I would say is that, and this is a really something that, that some people will argue, but I, it's, it, I've never been more sure of anything in my life. If you have to run your bullets almost touching the lands, I mean like five thousandths, ten thousandths, uh, or touching the lands, or as you start to get the bullet back off the lands, 20, 30,000, your accuracy goes to crap. It's because that barrel was not cut concentric. Uh, it, the chamber was not cut concentric. And essentially what happens is you've got that Y that the, that the bullet goes into. And so it's kind of in an exaggerated manner, it's pointed not straight down the barrel. It's pointed off a little bit. So the further that bullet gets out of that case before it touches that land at an angle, the more it deforms that bullet. And so that's why those bullets will shoot better jammed right into the lands is because they don't get a run and start and get to warp nearly as much. Uh, but I have never, uh, well, here's another, there was a guy, <clears throat> there was a guy who had a, a rifle sponsor. And I won't tell you who the guy was, and I won't tell you who the rifle sponsor was, but I will swear on a Bible that this is absolutely true. Um, and he called me and said, hey, this six creed more, whatever it was, won't shoot. I just got this rifle from my sponsor and it won't shoot. So I got it. Again, not terrible, but it had some problems and I fixed them. And he shot that rifle until he was jumping 120 thousandths with the bullet. And he called me one day and said, this barrel is never going to wear out. And I said, oh, yes, it is. And uh, he actually finished top 10 with, with one of my barrels while he was sponsored by another company. And nobody to this day knows, and they will never know because I will never tell you who it was. Um, but it's an absolutely hand on the Bible, true story. Um, so that's a case there where I'm talking about good versus really good. Um, when you have somebody who's done a really good job, uh, it shouldn't, uh, uh, your rifle shouldn't be sensitive to load. It shouldn't be sensitive to bullets. It shouldn't be sensitive to jump. Uh, it should pretty much shoot anything you put in it. And, uh, you know, if you're having to, if you're having, if it's really picky on loads and, and jump and all that, you, you've got some issues there. You've got something that's not true. And uh, so when, you know, the thing is the stuff that I do, I did it. Um, I want to say something good about another guy because he's, he's not with us anymore. And that's Robert Greatest. Robert Greatest was a great rifle builder. And I knew he was a great rifle builder. But I didn't know exactly what he was doing, but I knew he had to be doing things pretty much the way I was doing them because his accuracy was pretty much the same as mine was. And he did some videos right before he passed away that said, hey, here's how I do everything. And I was shocked. When he did those videos, I was shocked because it wasn't kind of the same as I do it. It was literally to the, to the smallest detail the same way I do it. And so I don't know if he was trained by the same guy that trained me or not, but there, the truth is, regardless of how you get there, all of the guys and or gals, I guess, who are building really extreme accuracy rifles is what I like to call them. There's really only one way to get there. There's only one really way of doing the chambers and doing the whole thing. 
that will get you those kind of results. So when I see somebody whose rifle shoot to a certain level of accuracy, I know what they're doing because there's no other way to do it. They're, they're just not. Um, so, you know, as far as picking a gunsmith, don't, again, none of us are geniuses. Okay, just because a guy can build an accurate rifle, I'm not a genius, okay? I, I'm a, I'm a, I like to say I'm a machinist who builds rifles. I'm not really a rifle builder. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm really a, a, a pretty good machinist who, who you know, I, I tell people I buy the best parts in the world and I do perfect machine work to them and you, the results are what they are, you know? Um, but, you know, get somebody who, uh, you know, George's rifle shoot that way. They're, they're, they're really forgiving, pretty much put anything in them. Um, Mark Gordon is another guy who's really good uh, up at Short Action Customs. And, and there's several more. Um, the guys at uh, APA are really good, although they don't, they do mostly hunting rifles. Um, and that's another thing is find a guy who does the kind of rifles you, you want to shoot because there are people who don't do hunting rifles and they don't know anything about a 6XC. I, I've had people build, I've had people bring six millimeter stuff to me that to fix. And the guy told them when they brought it to him, he didn't know anything about it. I've never built a six Creedmoor before, whatever it was. Well, if a guy tells you that, it's probably a good idea to try to find somebody else to do it. If, he, if he's not a competition rifle guy, um, find somebody who is, uh, because it's, it's, it's a different thing. I'm building, building little pencil barrel hunting rifles and doing what we do is completely different. Um, it's kind of the same, but it's really, the, the, the bullets are different. Uh, the reamers and, and the throats are different. It's just, it's just kind of a different animal. So um, word of mouth is good, but the problem is there are a lot of people. And I'm gonna say 80% of the people who shoot the PRS at least have actions that have not been modified to make them as perfect as they could be and make them where they will shoot as accurately as they can shoot. Because I was shocked when I found out how to do this. Um, and I have never had a rifle come in from any other shop. Now, I don't get a lot of rifles in from the big name shops. I get rifles in from oddball shops, but I've never had a rifle come in that had had any of this stuff done to it. Uh, and I even had some, uh, when I had my range out there in Greenville, uh, there was a, a, a city not too far from where we were that their entire sniper team would come out there, police sniper team would come out there and practice. I walked out there one day and they had this like, you know, one shot and then there was one shot and then there was four more shots over here to the right about an inch. And I said, is that your Cold War shot? And he said, yes. And I looked at all the targets and all the targets were like that. I said, I can fix that. And he said, you can. I said, yes, I can absolutely fix that. You should not have Cold War shift. If you have Cold War shift, you have a problem. Absolutely guarantee it 100%. They left the rifles with me. I fixed them. And he said, he came back and he said, I don't know what you did, but these don't shoot like the same rifles anymore. And I said, well, it's not a big deal. But that is another telltale sign that you have a problem. If you've got Cold War shift, it is always caused by too much tolerance in the action somewhere. It can be a number of different places, although it's typically the same place. Uh, but that's another giveaway that you've got some issues with your action is if you're if your first three shots don't go through the same, pretty much the same hole, you, you know, you've got some issues. So that's that that and, and finicky load development are the two signs that you may have a good gunsmith, but you don't have maybe as good a gunsmith as is available. It's a lot goes into it. 
Yep. So I'm assuming these are like these these are secret things that, that you're not gonna tell us what what's loose where and uh they're they're not I'll be honest with you, Greg. Here's the thing, they're not secret. Most guys, a lot of guys know about it. But in order to do this, you have to you actually have to do something by hand. And if you screw it up, you've screwed up a lot of money. And it can be screwed up very easily. And it takes it took me a long time to get good at it. And I started out doing it where it took hours and hours. Now I've got it down where I can do it in 10 minutes. But it's one of those things that a lot of guys knows about, but they're not going to put the time and effort in to do it because it's it's there's too much risk involved in it. And they don't perhaps really understand the benefits of it. Uh, they may have heard people about people doing it, but they really, I don't think, understand just how much better a rifle shoots once you do some of this stuff to it. Now, I'll tell you what my current thing is that, I'm, that I think is really funny. What is the latest thing in the PRS? Barrel tuners. Have you seen these, Jennifer? Barrel tuners. I've seen them. Okay. So what, what, what uh, brake have you got on your rifle behind you there, Jennifer? The MPA. Okay. And is it a self-timing brake where you can, you've got a little, you've got a little nut that you tighten up, you line it up and then you tighten up a collar? Greg, is it self-tightening? I can't remember. Yes, I almost it, guarantee you. Yep, yep, it is. Okay. So let me tell you what I learned years ago, back before I knew all the stuff that I know now, is if you loosen that little collar and you roll that brake around 180 degrees or you roll that brake around 360 degrees and you tighten that collar back up, you have done exactly the same thing that a barrel tuner does. And it will, a full rotation of that brake will take you all the way from the bottom of a node to the top of a node. Now, if you have an action that's been done by me, you're not gonna have nodes, but if you're, if you're a person who's still dealing with nodes, that is the exact same way a barrel tuner works. And so I saw somebody the other day with a barrel tuner and in front of the barrel tuner was an APA brake. And it's literally, you can do the exact same thing just with the brake. So I, I hate to disappoint those who've gone out and bought barrel tuners, they do work. They, they absolutely work, if, you know, but there again, if you, if you prepare the action right, you don't need any of that because you don't have nodes. You've eliminated the nodes. So a little uh, insight for the viewers that uh, maybe barrel tuners are not what you want to spend your money on. Maybe you can just take your self-timing brake and roll it out a half turn. And some of them are clocked where they have an up and down. So you have to roll them 180, you have to roll them 360 degrees. You can't roll them 180. But uh, if you're if you're struggling with nodes, then try that, and I think you'd be shocked at how well it'll work. Interesting. It's really fascinating what all goes into all of this, the harmonics, everything. I mean, it's just it's really fascinating to me. Mm -hmm. Well, here's the thing to remember: it's taken me like eight years to learn all this stuff. I didn't learn all this stuff in a year. I was lucky that I got trained by one of the best gunsmiths in the world. So that was a huge jump start for me. And I was lucky that I had a background in, in machining that was much more difficult than what we do now. Um, so that was a big jump start for me. Uh, but the rest of this stuff I've kind of learned over time and uh, experimentation with my own rifles. Um, I'll tell you something else I did at the last match I shot. And this is another deal where I'm gonna, people are just gonna think I've lost my mind. I've never been a big fan of these six dashers and six BRs and, and, and now there's, there's brass available for them, okay? But back when you had to fire form brass, okay? 
the only reason anybody ever wanted to go down that road was to reduce recoil. So David, the guy that I was sponsoring out in Oregon said, Paul, do me a favor. He said, you built me a six creed more and it's the most accurate rifle you've ever built me. He said, that reamer is amazing. He said, build you, cause I was shooting six XC. I've been shooting six XC for about three years and I was pretty happy with it. But he said, build you a six creed more and run it at 2850. Run, just run like 38 grains of powder at 2850. The last match I shot, which was at uh, Altus, was the, the, the best match I've ever shot as far as just being consistent and being able to see my impacts. And the rifle put two rounds through one hole when I was at 100 yards sighting it in, and it didn't miss anything all weekend unless I just misread the wind. So um, you can get the exact same performance. Now, in the, in the old days, the that Hornady 6 Creedmoor brass was terrible, and you would get these oddball flyers. But now there's some good 6-5 six creed, six, Creedmoor brass and 6 Creedmoor brass. Um, so it's a little different deal, but if you can get your hands on some good six creed more brass and drop your powder down, I promise you that it will shoot. It, it will do everything a six BR will do. And, uh, the only advantage of the BR is you're, you're using less powder, which is, is an advantage. Um, and you may get a little better barrel life, uh, but at 2850, I can't imagine you're not going to get 3000 rounds out of a six creed more. Uh, I took one of my rifles that had 2,500 rounds on it. About the time I usually quit shooting them for competition. And I took it out to Altus uh, back when I was a member out there. And I just started running rounds through it as fast as I could. I, I loaded like four magazines, four 10 round magazines. And I just started shooting as fast as I could shoot. And I got the rifle so hot that I couldn't even hold the chassis anymore. And it was throwing, it started finally throwing rounds about five inches, but it was after about 45 rounds. It took that long to get it hot enough, even with 2,500 rounds on it. And that that's not a, any testament to my gunsmithing. I'm just saying that a lot of people, I think, are, are getting rid of barrels long before they're really burned up. Um, I think most people could get 3,000 rounds out of their six millimeter rifles. Um, and if you're running a six millimeter rifle, the answer, and I think most people have figured this out now, but in the early days when six millimeter first showed up, everybody thought 3150 and all that was the answer. And, and you know, there's just a lot of problems. That fall with. The difference between 50 and 3100 feet per second in barrel life is probably 40%. It, it could be more than 40%. When you get above 3000, there is a drastic fall off of the curve of barrel life with a six millimeter rifle. And you're, if you look at a ballistic computer and you look at what you're gaining as far as bucking the wind, it's almost negligible, even at, even at a thousand yards. So I would encourage people to try running their six millimeters down, maybe 2850, 2900. And I, I think the, the six creed more than six XC, uh, there's not probably not a lot of people now shoot them. Everybody's gone to the six BR and the six dasher, but uh, you know, if you're still, if you're still old school running that six creed more stuff, I would encourage you to get down around 2850 and just, I think you'd be shocked at how much you would like it. I think that's, uh, I'm having trouble finding ammo uh, right now. And I don't have my dies, but I just got six millimeter Creedmoor. And so uh, my plan was to try and run it slow. There you go. Because I need my barrels to last. Yeah, about 38 and a half, somewhere in there is with, with H4350 is about where you're going to want to be. And I, 
I don't remember the link. I want to say to 800 to the tip, but I may be wrong on that. That may be 6.5 Creamore. Um, but uh, so that's just a little bit of that. Um, I know it's a very long answer to how to pick a gunsmith, but uh, <laughs> it's, I, I, you know, I, I'll tell you some funny stories. And, and every and the funny thing is when you get four or five rifles, again, you get me and Jim C and a couple other guys together in a match. All we talk about is the crap we see in our shops from other, from other shops. Especially Jim and, uh, Yeah, I saw, I had a guy drop a rifle off one time and I don't know what he dropped it off for, but I took it apart and I looked at the bedding job in it and I called the guy and I said, did you do this betting job? And he said, sir, I'm a doctor. I don't even know what a betting job is. And I said, well, neither did the guy who did this betting job. It, it literally looked like it had been done by a five-year-old. But the funny thing about that story is the guy had taken a laser engraver and made this beautiful, I kid you not, it was, it was inches long. Joe Bob's custom rifles, you know, Beaver Bend, Illinois, the zip code. I mean, it had everything but his picture on it because he was so proud that he had built this rifle. And uh, I, I'll never forget that. That was just, I just thought it was funny. Not, not that it was that bad a quality, but that it just, that he had taken, I'd never seen a builder put their logo all the way down the barrel and, you know, three quarter inch letters like that. It was, it was really funny. Oh, Lord. So, uh, do you, in addition to gunsmithing, you also enjoy teaching long range shooting. Do you currently offer classes? I'm trying. Uh, we There's a gentleman named Robert Baines, who you may know from Facebook. He's, he's a former Marine. He's got a huge following on Facebook and he and I've gotten to be buddies. And unbeknownst to most of the world, I will be putting his rifle together tomorrow. I've been procuring parts for about three or four months for him. And uh, we were putting a 6.5 Creedmoor together and finally got all the parts in today and got them painted. And uh, so that's going together tomorrow. He doesn't know that yet. He thinks we're still waiting on a bolt. But uh, so he'll be getting a picture tomorrow afternoon that will make him very happy. But he and I are trying to teach class together. Um, it's been a little bit difficult. My wife and I, we, we were literally 12 o'clock on the eye of the hurricane, Sally. Uh, we had horrendous damage and we just now got the roof done like three weeks ago so we've had other priorities and, and on top of me picking up I picked up about 15 jobs from another shop uh, that I've been trying to get knocked out and uh, then we pretty well had things worked out we had uh, we had a date reserved at triple c range south of Fort Worth which is one of the biggest nicest facilities in the country and I got an email two weeks later that they were being shut down um, I heard about that yeah, so that's not good. So he and I are going to teach a class later this year. Uh, we have the option of teaching it at my old range in Texas. We have the option of using arena. Um, what I'm shooting for really is the place where the Alabama match is. I really like that facility. Um, I always do well there and I just, I just like it. There's a little bit of everything there. You got some hills, you got some valleys, you got some trees, you got some wide open. Um, and I've talked to uh, the folks there. And uh, so I think that's probably where we're going to end up using. Uh, we're going to end up using the Alabama range. And it's probably at this point going to be fall. Uh, Robert just got a big contract for whatever kind of work it is he does. And, uh, you know, I'm a big fan of giving a class four or five months at least to fill up, let this ammo thing kind of slow down. Uh, the events of today certainly did not uh, 
did not help us in that respect. Yeah, um, but I mean, let's don't let's don't get off on that topic because it will it will not do anything but get us all put on a list we don't want to be on. So, <laughs> um, so yes, I will be teaching long range class. I'm trying to do it somewhere where we can get out past a thousand yards. I really wanted to do a, a three day course where we start out the first two days are basically rifle one, and then the the last day is rifle two, where we go out to a mile or so. Um, I have taught some classes out of a, a ranch in West Texas where we could get out to 3,000 yards. And I don't teach for any other reason than I love to see the expression on people's faces. Um, I've had emails from students that said, you know what, this weekend was the most fun I've ever had in my life. I never, never dreamed I would hit a target at, you know, whatever distance it was. Mm -hmm. And that's, you can't put a price on that. And, I, and I'm being dead serious. I'm at a point in my life where I do what I enjoy doing. I'm 58 years old. I'm not in this for the money anymore. I build the rifles and I want to build for the people I want to build them for. Um, if, if, you know, if you want something built and it's something I'm interested in building, I, you know, I'm happy to help you. If it's not something I really care about doing, I'm not going to do it. Uh, but I love teaching. I, I love, you know, I had a guy that posted on Facebook and he had a picture and I honestly didn't even remember that he had ever taken a class from me. And he said, whatever day it was something post a great memory on Facebook there or something. And that's what he posted was a picture of him at a 900 or thousand yard target. And, you know, I took a class today and, and he, you know, this was like five years ago and he still thought it was one of the best days of his life. And I, mm -hmm. I don't really pick up on that a lot of times during the class, but people, people really enjoy that. And to see the, to see the light on with the wind, when I start calling wind for him and I say, okay, what's the mirage doing? All right, what's the Mirage doing? Did the Mirage pick up or did it let off? Is it left or right or is it right to left? And you know, at first they're just completely lost, but as the, as the weekend goes on, they start to pick up and, and man, it's just, it's so rewarding to see people doing things that they never thought they would be able to do. Let's say it, it's, you always remember your first time, you know, like my first time on, I mean, no, on the range. Um, you know, your first time shooting about a thousand yards, or for me, it was my first time shooting over 150 yards, I think was the first I shot before my, my first shot out of that MPA chassis. And then I remember my first mile shot. Then I remember my first shot over a mile, like super clear. And it's just, it's an awesome feeling. And it, Did you have a live? Yeah. Um, so John wants to know who is your favorite barrel manufacturer? I use Krieger and Bartline. Uh, there's no difference in the quality between those two, but the Kriegers tend to be about 30 feet per second faster with the same twist rate because they're a four groove as opposed to a five groove. Uh, there are there are bushings we use on our reamers that are in two ten thousands acres, and I don't think I've changed the bushings on my reamers in four years because those barrels are that consistent. Uh, one of the main things that makes a barrel really good is the consistency of the bore diameter. If you run a slug, what's called a slug, which is just a lead thing run down a barrel to test the, the contrast and bore diameter on a, like a factory Remington barrel, it'll go easy for six inches, then it'll just stop and you'll just almost not be able to push it for two inches, then it'll go easy, then it'll be medium, then it'll stop again. Um, and obviously that's not conducive to consistent velocity. So uh, Krieger-Bartline is, is the best, and I will say this real quickly because I know we're running out of time, but I don't do carbon fiber barrels. There are no free lunches. If you don't believe anything else I ever tell you, there are no free lunches. Carbon fiber barrels are $800. It'd be very likely for me to ever mess up a guy's barrel 
but if I do, I'm not paying eight hundred dollars for it. So um, I don't. There, I've not been impressed with the bore diameter or the bore consistency, the bore straightness. Um, it's a little piece of metal with carbon wrapped around it, and it's going to get hot. It's going to start throwing shots. It's a little better than a pencil barrel barrel, a, a pencil sized barrel, but you're only gaining a little bit of performance over a pencil barrel, and it costs you know double what a regular barrel costs. Any other lives? I believe that is uh, all we have for right now. All right. Let's see what else we got. Oh, so what does the future hold for PMAC Precision? Are you going to end? Are you going to continue competing? I think I'm probably done competing. Um, I had some You're not shooting issues. Alabama next month? No, I had some back issues last year that really put me down for about six months, which is why I shut. I shut my business down for, for a year. Um, and, and this sounds like I'm one of those kind of hard to believe stories, but a couple of my customers just kept calling me and asking me to go back into business. So I like, please go back into business. And I said, um, you know, if you guys will front some money for me to get a lathe, because I sold everything. I mean, I was done. I said, you guys front some money for me to get a lathe. I'll go back into business. Of course, I didn't think they'd do that. Well, they did. And so I got caught bluffing. And so my back got better, you know, my wife and I bought a house. I had a place to work out of with no overhead. And uh, so I started things back up a few months ago. And uh, I'm gonna continue to do this as long as I physically can, as long as I enjoy it, as long as there's a demand for it. Um, again, I enjoy the feedback I get from the customers. I, I love to get the, you know, the one whole target back from people. Um, the, the just, I guess I'll throw this out there. To date, the best group that's ever been shot with one of my rifles was by David McNeil, who is one of the best shooters in the country. And that was uh, a three-shot group that measured 0.690 at 893 yards. And that's probably not ever gonna be beat. Uh, that's, that's pretty amazing, but that's mostly a testament to him. You gotta have a good rifle, but he's a, he's a phenomenal shooter. So to shoot an under three quarter inch group at, at 900 yards is, is almost unbelievable, but it's, I've got the pictures of it, it happened. So, you know, I really work to try to make the most accurate rifles I can possibly make. So it's uh, it's what I do and I enjoy doing it. And I'm gonna to try to keep doing it. I've gotten into some other things. I'm back to shooting pool competitively. I used to shoot pool pretty competitively and I had not played in almost 20 years. And I started five weeks ago and I have already finished in the top five in a couple of local tournaments. And uh, so I'm kind of getting to that as kind of a hobby thing. And I've gotten into woodworking a little bit. So when I'm not building rifles, I'm either shooting pool or or doing woodworking for my wife, whatever project she's got. But uh, as long as I'm physically capable, I would say seven, eight more years at least. I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep pumping out these extreme accuracy rifles if I can. So I got two live questions. Uh, one from Jennifer Seymour. She wants to know if you offer pool lessons. <laughs> it's funny you ask that. I am in the process of becoming a certified billiards instructor. There is, there is a program through the American Q Sports. Uh, where you can become a level one, two, three, or four instructor. And I have started a program to become a level, get my level one and level two. The next, the next two take a couple of years. Um, but uh, yes, that's, and it goes back to the fact that I like teaching. So. That's I'm awesome. not good at pool. <laughs> it's not funny. I'm not good at pool either. I'm, I'm just laughing because I'm I was about to say, when we play pool, I beat you both times. No, one of the two times. Thank you very much. Rematch. You're going at it again. I don't know about that. 
Uh, and Rudy reminded us we were supposed to ask you about optics. Oh, yes. How much time have we got? As much as you want. We still got people watching. We'll keep talking. All right. Now, here's, here's where things are going to get a little slippery. Let me state up front that I'm associated with Valdada Optics. Valdada Optics is a representative for uh, IOR Optics, which is Industry Optics Romania, which is one of the oldest optics companies in the world. They actually were forced to build optics for the Germans in World War II. They have been around since about the time that Zeiss started. And because they're kind of a semi-government run company, we had a hard time getting optics out of them for a while. So Val and I designed our own scopes and they are currently being built by uh, Night Optic Works in Japan, which was the company that used to build Night Force back when Night Force, when, when the guy used to go around beating nails into boards with Night Force scopes, that was the company that was building them. Since then, Night Force has sold to another company. The guy that started it no longer runs it. And that is almost always a bad thing when the guy who starts the company sells out and leaves. Um, now, as I understand it, and I'm going to say this because it is, it is what I have been told by people who are very knowledgeable in the optics industry. Bushnell, Leopold, and Night Force basically come out of the same factory. Um, which is only funny to me because you will see people saying, I love my Night Force, I would not have one of those Leopold piece of crap scopes. Or I love my Bushnell, I wouldn't have a Night Force, it's a piece of junk. Um, what I can tell you is they're all basically made to the same quality level. Uh, that's not necessarily bad. The Night Force scopes are really good. The, the Japanese glass has come a long way. The scopes that Val and I designed and are having built in Japan are the first scopes to ever have German shot glass in them. Um, you know, the IOR scopes, scopes are built in Romania, and they've always had German shot glass in them, as does Schmidt-Bender, as does Zeiss. Um, but this was the first scope ever built in Japan, and it took us almost nine months to talk the Japanese into doing it. Um, however, having said that, the Japanese glass is getting very good, and, and they're, they're very smart people. And so the scopes like the Night Force and the Bushnell are getting where they're really nice, the Vortex stuff is getting better and better and better, and it's getting harder and harder and harder to tell the difference between it. Uh, as far as clarity, now where you're gonna run into some issues and big differences in optics is in the coatings. If you look at a Schmidt Bender, which is a fine scope by all accounts, when the Mirage gets heavy, it's like looking through a glass of water. The Mirage gets really, really difficult to see through. Um, that is a function of the coatings they use. There will be other scopes that might cost far less than a Schmidt vendor that you like better in high mirage situations. Um, not that it's not a great scope overall. It is an absolutely fantastic scope overall. But I'm just saying, just because you spend the most money on something or it's the most expensive scope on the market, doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to like it. Um, the other thing I get a big kick out of is all the horse reticles and all the trees and you know the stuff that I've helped design. We have some, some sub-tensions down in the reticle and stuff. But I bought one of those Horse 59 Bushnells when they first came out years ago before I started running IOR, and I couldn't see anything but reticle. I mean, if you miss the target, the odds of you seeing the impact were pretty slim because there was just reticle everywhere. Um, and I've watched Matt Brousseau win year after year with a Schmidt Midder that has a very basic reticle on it. So there again, the reticle is not the answer. The scope's probably not the answer. Once you get a decent scope, you know, once you're running a, a, a Bushnell or a Schmidt Bender or an Night Force or Leopold, um, those are all good scopes. They're probably going to track correctly. Um, they're probably going to hold zero. And 
that goes back to what I said earlier about quit, quit changing equipment. You know, quit, quit swapping one $3,000 scope for another $3,000 scope because you're probably not really gaining anything. Uh, that would be like changing a, you know, an impact precision action for a defiance action or something. There are some differences in them and I prefer impact, but they're both good actions as, as is Stiller. Stiller makes a really good action. Um, so the, the thing to remember is that an optic on its best day is a fairly delicate instrument. It's not a hammer. Um, the, the ones that are durable are durable, but they break. Every brand of scope breaks. Schmidt and Bender went through a period of time where they quit inspecting every scope. They started having quality issues. That's well documented. Um, you know, we've had some models over the years that I've dealt with in IOR that really had some problems. Um, and, and everybody goes through that. Um, so get you a good scope. Um, what you have to remember about a scope that's made overseas is this. If it costs you $1,200, it costs the company about $300 to build it. Maybe, maybe $450, maybe $500, but it didn't cost them very much. And so, you know, the, the, like, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to make this a commercial as much as I'm trying to explain the difference in the way the optics industry works. When we designed our scopes that we, we had built in Japan, we, we didn't put a price. There was no price. We want the best scope you can build. We want the best springs, the best ball bearings, blah, blah, blah there are different component levels. So even if Leopold and Night Force and Bushnell are built in the same factory, I don't, I don't know, I've heard they are, they may not be. Each of those companies could spec out their own internal components. So they may or may not be the same quality. Um, they're gonna get different glass specifications, you know, different reticles. Um, so find something you like, find something that the reticle works for you May not work for me, may not work for Jennifer, but find something you're comfortable with. And if it tracks true and holds zero, quit changing scopes. You need to get used to the equipment you're using, um, regardless of what it is. Find something you're happy with and quit changing equipment because getting used to that reticle and being able to intu intuitively do holdovers with that reticle is very important. And that takes some time when you change reticles to get really good at, at intuitively knowing how to do those holdovers without really thinking about it. So um, find an upper end good quality scope and then you know use it and stick with it. I like my little basic mill C reticle. <laughs> I don't like all the uh, noise. I want like EBR 2C, I love it. That's a good, that's a good reticle. Mm -hmm. I got it on the, on the PST on the rimfire back here and then on my amazing razor in the, in the gun safe on the center fire. Yeah, I, I've always liked that reticle. I always thought it was really good. Mm -hmm. so there's, there's lots of good stuff out there. You know, that's, that, my point is that once you've got something that works, leave it alone and go on to something else and, uh, you know. Mm -hmm. Are there any lives, Greg? Uh, Wendell said this is one of the best episode he's watched in a while. Talk about honesty and right at you. Oh, cool. Thank you, Wendell. And that's about it. We had we had several people back a little bit earlier when we were in the, when we were in the middle of something, just talking about how awesome the rifles you build. Um, but um, I've lost those comments now. But you know the the biggest compliment I ever got was a customer called me, a potential customer called me one time, and he said. I want you to build me a reticle. I've on the internet, 
and I cannot find one single person who will say anything bad about you or your office. And I thought that that, I said, well, apparently my ex-wives are not on the internet anymore or something, but <laughs> the, the other thing is that, uh, what was I going to say? I lost my mind. I lost my track of thought, but um, it, it's, you know, that means a lot to me. It, it's, it's hard to do. Um, I don't have a website anymore. I don't have a Facebook page anymore. Um, it's just pmacprecision at gmail.com. And, you know, if, if, if you need to find me or want to find me, my prices are the same as everybody else's prices. I don't charge, you know, a premium. Uh, I, I don't feel like it's worth more than what I charge. You know, I, I don't think anybody should be charging more than what I charge. Uh, that's another one of my pet peeves of Sonny's rifles that are $12,000. You know, it's, it's just absurd. So, um, but uh, I appreciate y'all having me on very much. This has been a lot of fun and uh, hopefully I haven't rambled on too much. No, lots of good information. Yeah, I was about to say, this is one of those I'm going to have to go back and uh, re-watch re when I'm not trying to look at lives and follow questions and just kind of take in more of this information. Yeah, a lot of the shows, it's it's hard to keep up with questions and everything we're doing and listen to everything. So a lot of them that have a lot of good information, I'll go back and re-watch. That might be, this might be one of those for sure. But we will wind it down right now to... Shout outs, Greg. All right, um, I have GSL suppressors um, right here. It makes my, my, my 22 QP really, really quiet. Um, and Classic Jewelry and Loan in Thompson, Georgia for helping me uh, figure out what I'm supposed to write down for all the ATF and all of that stuff. Um, shooters and Sharpshooters of Augusta are local indoor and outdoor ranges here in Augusta. PDC Custom, the most beautiful rifle chassis known to man right here. Um, available in lime green and normal human colors. Uh, Shooter's World Propellant. I still have a bunch of it. Um, if you want some, y'all better hurry up. You know, we're not going to go into all the politics and stuff, but yeah, stuff's getting hard to find. Um, Harness HD Gold. I am uh, blind as a bat, still not bifocal level, but um, pretty blind. And they let me see a whole lot of stuff and Vortec to keep my beautiful rifles clean. Paul, oh, you got any shout outs? Oh, I better thank my wife for letting me pretend to have a job. Um, <laughs> uh, that would be wise of you, sir. And I appreciate everything that Val Latou, the guy that owns Valdada Optics, has, he, you know, he has really supported me over the years. And he's like family, one of the nicest human beings I've ever met. Uh, so Valdada.com, uh, the G2 Recon is the scope that I designed. And uh, you can contact me at pmacprecision at gmail.com and get a really good price on one. Awesome. And for my shout outs, um, I'm paring it down this year. So I'm just going to shout out uh, Night Force Optics for great glass and Impact Actions for a beautiful action that I haven't gotten to shoot yet. Um, but I will soon, as soon as I can get some ammo. And uh, shout out to HD Gold, Shooters of Augusta and Sharp Shooters of Augusta for always supporting me from the beginning whenever I didn't do all of this big show and all that stuff. So thanks to them for locally supporting me. And I just want to thank you for spending like two hours of your night with us and get dropping some of your knowledge bombs on us. Thank y'all. I appreciate y'all having me. It's been a lot of fun. It has been. And we will see everybody else next week.